Are we on? Can you hear me? Okay. Thank you all. That was fantastic. Uh, good morning. So um, this microphone, I made the comment to, to Daniel and Josh back there that I feel like Garth Brooks with this mic on. And Josh said, or Britney Spears, I'm not sure what he meant by that, but <laughs> apparently this is the mic of choice of both of those people. So uh, anyway, I, um, I appreciate uh, the major league crowd showing up for the minor leagues today. <laughs> this is, this is going to be great. Um, you know, I really do sincerely appreciate this congregation and just the way you guys have accepted my family and allowed us to be able to share and, and things. And so uh, I don't know if you know what you're in for today, but here we go. So <laughs> We're going to be looking at the book of Daniel, just the first six chapters. We're going to do a brief run through. And, and I, what I'm hoping to communicate is just some simple little truths out of the book of Daniel that I think are very relevant to, to uh, our time today. The lessons that we can learn from, from the prophet Daniel, I think, are crucial to times when we're probably seeing a little bit of an increase in persecution against belief and against believers. And that may just be on the increase. We don't know, but it's likely. So I think we can learn some things from the life of Daniel and, and his, his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or some people call Rakshak and Benny. So um, we can learn from, from their example. And so hopefully we can just pull out a few little nuggets, and maybe it will just serve to encourage you this morning. So let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you for this day that you created, God. And we're humbled just by the fact that we don't have anything to do with the sun rising, with the birds chirping, or any of those things that are your handiwork. And it's a reminder of your sovereignty and your power and your presence. And God, we thank you for your word, and, and um, we're not worthy of your word or even really trying to communicate anything, but we pray that, Holy Spirit, you would allow that to happen this morning, that we would be encouraged in some way uh, from the life of those that have gone before, that we're committed to you, that we're your people, and help us to live that way, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So, um, most of you are familiar with the book of Daniel, and the wicked king, Nebuchadnezzar, who came along and besieged Jerusalem and carried off treasures from the temple and took them and placed them in the temples of his false gods in, in Babylon. And I think it's important to, to as an important note here in the very first part of uh, Daniel chapter 1 and verse 2, because um, we think of, of a wicked king, and I didn't give Daniel this verse, that's okay, you don't have to put it up, but um, we think of a wicked king as just coming along and overthrowing Jerusalem and taking people captive in this first deportation, moving people out to Babylon, which is what happened. But there's a, there's a little bit of an important point here in verse 2. It says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his, his gods, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his gods. So I think it's an important point to note that 
Nebuchadnezzar doesn't just come along and besiege Jerusalem without God allowing it to happen. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So I think that's something we need to be aware of as we see um, an attack against the church and against believers is sometimes if we're not being the church in the way that maybe we should, the Lord allows discipline to come into our lives. And I think that's what's happening here. And we've seen it so many times in the Old Testament where God's people would stray away from him and would, would serve false gods or idols, and he would allow discipline to come. And often that's through great hardship. But this Nebuchadnezzar was not a stable person <laughs> at all. And we can see that as we read through the book of Daniel. He was not guided by wisdom or morality. And I can think of a few leaders right now that I, I think might fit that bill. <laughs> They're not guided by wisdom or God's morality. Wicked leaders can make godly living difficult. And I, you know, I can't help but think about some of the things that I see coming out of Canada right now. If you're familiar at all with um, the church that has really been under attack and the pastor that was imprisoned because of his unacceptable response to COVID, and they actually put him in prison, and he's been released, but now they've surrounded that church, fenced it off, and not allowed congregation to, I don't know what the latest is on it, but that's the last I was aware that was what was going on. Um, so... Wicked leaders can make godly living really difficult. James tells us that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. And I think uh, Nebuchadnezzar was a friend of the world. <laughs> and he was, he was hostile toward God, but then at times he would, he would come out and say these great things about the God of Daniel and how wonderful the God of Daniel is, and then he would turn right around and we'll see this uh, and then do something just crazy. Uh, so Daniel and his friends were taken captive about 600 years before Christ, the, uh, or 605 B.C. is what they say. So the king ordered that the best and the brightest and the most attractive be brought to serve in his court. So he's looking for these young men that are, that are talented, they're at, maybe they're athletic, they're, they're smart, and he brings them in to, and to serve in his court, but they have to go through this training, three years of training. He gave them pagan names, and actually Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were the names given to Daniel's friends, and you can see their names uh, if you read through this first chapter of, of Daniel. But they became Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel actually became Belteshazzar, is what he, the name that he gave him. So he, he changes their names. They spend three years being educated in the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So their identity is, in a way, being stolen from them. They're being rewired for the purposes of the state, really, of a, of a wicked king. It makes me think of this thing that I've heard of called sensitivity training, <laughs> where, you know, if you don't go along and you don't think the way that, that they want you to think, you're re-educated. You're taught a new way to think. And so they were even told what they should eat and drink while being re-educated. And if you think these things don't happen in our world, ask the Uyghurs of China right now about being re-educated and being put in camps for that purpose. 
The interesting thing about Daniel is he didn't rebel against this forced learning of Chaldean language and culture, but when it came down to the king telling them what they had to eat and drink, that's when he said, we can't do that. We cannot do that. And it's likely that, that the meat that they were given had been sacrificed to idols. And so, as a good Jewish young man, Daniel said, I cannot, we're not going to participate in that. He and his friends, they said no to that. And of course, if you know the story, they convinced the, the official that, was, that had authority over them to give them a, a diet of vegetables and, and water and then see how they compared to the other people. So these Chaldeans were magicians, conjurers, sorcerers, very pagan culture. And so Daniel and his friends were being taught these, these pagan ways of thinking and acting. But of course, um, they, didn't, uh, they didn't follow along in disobedience to God, though. In verse 9, chapter 1, Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. God honored Daniel's obedience. When he said no to violating God's commands, God honored that. So they ate vegetables and drank water instead of the meat and the wine and the choice foods of the king, and God blessed them. Uh, Verse 17, As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams, and and don't you know that comes into play (laughs) in a very big way. And then verse 20, And as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all of his realm. So God honored their obedience. In John 12, 26, Jesus says, If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So I think that's one of the first lessons we can learn out of uh, the story of Daniel is that God honors those who honor him. You know, think about your life right now. In what ways is God calling you to honor him? Is there a specific area of your life that God's saying, You haven't given me total control of that. You're not honoring me in this area of your life, because God honors those who honor him. So Daniel goes on, and he, the the king has a dream, and and he um, goes to these, uh, of course, these Chaldeans who are conjurers, like we said, and and, uh, magicians, and and, um, supposed to be able to interpret dreams. I'm going to knock that off if I don't put it They're supposed to be able to interpret dreams and do all these things. And and so the king goes to them, but kind of to test them, he says, I want you to interpret the dream, but I don't want you to only interpret the dream. I want you to tell me what my dream was. Of course, they go, well, that's impossible. No one, you know, the the gods couldn't even, or it would take gods to do that. And so it's just ridiculous to them that he would ask them uh, something uh, so outlandish. But he does, and um, of course, none of them can do it. But Daniel can. So he interprets the king's dream and he gets promoted to the chief uh, of all of the wise men in Babylon. Daniel's kind of moving up the ranks here. So this unstable king, Nebuchadnezzar, chapter 2, verse 47. Look at what he says. If I can find it. 
chapter 2, verse 47. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you've been able to reveal this mystery. Because Daniel could not only tell him the dream, but the interpretation of it, what it meant. Nebuchadnezzar, all of a sudden, he, he elevates Daniel to you know, more power in, in his kingdom. And he says, Surely your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. So this crazy King Nebuchadnezzar is stating these things about the God of Daniel. That Basically, it's almost like what Jesus said. <laughs> He's King of kings and Lord of lords. And this crazy king is saying this. And then just a few years later, I assume it's a few years, that's what a lot of scholars believe, he has this golden statue erected that everyone in the kingdom is forced to bow down to and to worship. And any who refuse would be cast into the fiery furnace, right? So talk about instability. <laughs> On one hand, he says, oh, Daniel, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. But then a little bit later, he's going to erect a statue and tell everyone they have to worship this false god, this idol. He was anything but stable. But he knew some of the right things to say, didn't he? Of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego um, refused to worship the idol uh, chapter 3, verse 12. Uh, these, so these leaders come along and say, There are certain Jews whom you've appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. So these jealous leaders, they come along and they accuse and they point out that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will not bow the knee to a false god. So Nebuchadnezzar flies into a rage. And he has this furnace, which is probably hot enough to melt steel. I don't know. He has it heated to seven times the normal temperature. And he has them thrown into the furnace. So this same king who had promoted Daniel because he was in with Daniel's God, remember, God of gods and Lord of kings. He referred to him that way. Uh, this, same God, this same king who, who does that has them thrown into a furnace for not basically bowing down to an idol that was probably a likeness of himself. So an important point, though, is they were not punished for worshiping God. They were punished for not worshiping the idol. And so, as believers, we should be savvy enough to realize that our freedoms and our rights of, of assembly and worship, they might not just be outright stripped away. They could, but if not, you'll be free to worship God, but you better act in certain ways and you better believe certain things. And we already see that at work. You can worship God, but if you... Here's a great example from our from the news a few years back. You can worship God on your own, but if you refuse to use your business in a way that, that goes against your conscience, like baking a cake for you know, a homosexual wedding or something, you can't do that. The same principle at work. See, we need to understand when we read the book of Daniel, we should be looking for, how does this apply to our lives? The same principle is at work there. They were not punished for worshiping God. They were punished for what they would not worship or what they would not honor or what they would not believe. So I think 
uh, another important lesson to learn is that um, yesterday's commitment won't get you through today. I don't know that he was committed, but it seemed like he was in the moment when Nebuchadnezzar said, Daniel, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. He says that one day, but then the next day, he's worshiping false gods. So yesterday's commitment will not get you through today. You know, we need to wake up. Just like God's mercies are new every morning, our faith needs to be new every morning too. We can't rely on yesterday's faith. Where are we at right now? Jesus tells us to take up our cross daily and follow him. So I think it's important for us to identify anything in our life that could be an idol. Is there anything that, that gets in the way of our honor to God, our worship of Him. And sometimes there might be things that we don't like to recognize. <laughs> like, and probably a lot of us battle this, you know, how much time does social media or, or the news or YouTube videos or whatever, how much time is taken that we're not giving to God? Not that those things are bad in and of themselves, but if they consume us, we don't have time for prayer, we don't have time for God's Word, or we don't have time for worship, then we need to look at our lives. Identify anything that could be an idol in our lives. The king was basically asking them to violate the first and second commandments by, by bowing down to this false idol, where God says, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself an idol. And they could not do that. They said, we cannot do that. You do whatever you want with us, we're not going to do that. And they tell him that. You throw us in the furnace, throw us in the furnace. We'd rather die in the furnace than not honor our God. Don't you think we have decisions to be making now about how we will react, or how we will respond to the things that wicked rulers might try to force upon us? We better make up our minds now. They did. They said, you do what you want. We're not bowing down to a false god. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not willing, or I mean, they were willing to accept the furnace in order to honor God. Sometimes we have to go through the fire to experience God's presence. Look at chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. So they, they throw them into the furnace, and it's so hot that the guys that take them up there to throw them in are consumed by the heat of the, of the furnace. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown in to this furnace, and the king is, uh, he's paying attention. King Nebuchadnezzar always seemed to understand that the God of Daniel and the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is powerful. Why else is he looking into the furnace to see if they're going to be consumed? <laughs> Maybe he just uh, got his kicks out of watching people suffer, I don't know, but I think he believed there's a real possibility that their God's going to protect them. So verse 24, then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He responded and said to his officials, was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, certainly, O king. He answered and said, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Wow. We all know who that fourth person was. Sometimes we have to go through the fire to experience God's presence. He showed up 
didn't he? He was with them. It's often in the midst of the flames that we see God at work and experience his presence the most. Are you going through a fire? Are there flames in your life in some way right now? Are you looking for the presence of God in the midst of it? Because he's there. He's with you. He never leaves us, never forsakes us. So once again, this unstable king, he recognizes that the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is worthy of praise. So here we go again, Nebuchadnezzar in verse 28. He responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, talking about himself, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. He acts like he's just astounded (laughs) that their god once again, you know, protects them and is with them. And then over in verse uh, 4, he carries on. Uh, um, sorry, chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs and how mighty are His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion is from generation to generation. This is the crazy King Nebuchadnezzar who's throwing people in a furnace for not worshiping God saying God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. Obviously saying, my kingdom is not an everlasting kingdom. So he once again honors God. He's seriously unstable. (laughs) Because it's not long before he goes from praising God to praising himself. All you got to do is jump over to verse uh, 30. The king reflected. And we're Am I still on? We can't um, read all of this. It's just too, too lengthy. But I encourage you to go back and read these first, at least these first six chapters of Daniel. So we're going to skip ahead. This crazy king who you heard what he just said about the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and how amazing he is and how his kingdom is everlasting. And now over here in verse 30, the king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great which I myself have built? as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. (laughs) This is why I call him a very unstable person. Remember, being impressed by God is not the same thing as being surrendered to him. Nebuchadnezzar, I think he was genuinely impressed. How could you not be? You, look, you throw three men in a furnace, you look in there and there's four, and then they come out and they don't even smell like smoke. That's impressive. Their God is powerful. So I think he was genuinely impressed by the one true God, but he wasn't surrendered to him. So he has another dream that gets interpreted by Daniel. Uh, and this one basically uh, of this tree and, it's gonna, and, and all the... People of the world, or you know, in the shade under its branches, and all the birds of the air, are making homes in its in its branches, and and all this stuff, and then it gets chopped down. So basically, the interpretation is that this tree is you, King Nebuchadnezzar, and and you're powerful, and and you know, all the peoples of the world probably are aware of of how magnificent your kingdom is, but the tree gets chopped down. That's you. You're going to get chopped down, <laughs> and and you're going to come to an end. 
So Daniel interprets this dream that basically guarantees that Nebuchadnezzar's reign is over. And it ends up coming true. He was driven out from mankind. He ate grass like cattle, and his hair grew like eagle's feathers, and his nails like bird's claws, the Bible says. So Nebuchadnezzar um, suffered because of, of pride and, and idolatry and all of these things. He gets driven out. He, he suffers. But then, and this is what's so amazing about our God, like every person who has ever lived, Nebuchadnezzar was given the opportunity to turn his heart back to God. What a merciful and gracious God we serve. No matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, no matter what we've thought, no matter what we've said, no matter how we've acted out, God is gracious to give us a chance to respond back to Him. And so Nebuchadnezzar, you can, you can read about it there, he... He does. He turns his heart toward God. And everything he had was restored back to him. When God is put in his rightful place, everything is set in order and healing and restoration comes. Even to crazy kings that are so unstable. So Nebuchadnezzar dies, and as far as we know from the text, he, he really honored God up to the end of his of his life at, at this point. I mean, it doesn't really tell us anything different, so we would assume that he really was broken. <laughs> he really did honor God. But he dies, and Belshazzar, his son, or, or many believe probably his grandson, becomes king. He throws a big party, and he brings out the gold and silver vessels. Remember those gold and silver vessels from Jerusalem, from the temple that we talked about in the very beginning that that when um, Nebuchadnezzar overthrew Jerusalem, they took those and they put them in the temple of his gods. Well, they take those, they're throwing this big party, this new king, Belshazzar, and they bring out the gold and silver vessels that were taken from the temple and um, they drink from them. But they don't stop there. It, it tells us in the text that they go on and they praise the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So they're worshiping false idols, of course, once again. And in the midst of this party... Belshazzar looks up and, and there's, a, there's a hand. I don't know if it was a giant hand or just a hand, but it's writing on the wall. And it terrifies him. You know that phrase, the handwriting's on the wall? Well, this is where we get that. It's the handwriting's on the wall. And it terrifies the king. And just like before, when Daniel was the only one who could interpret the dreams, now he's the only one who can interpret this handwriting, none of the conjurers, magicians, sorcerers, they didn't know what it, what it said or what it meant. So Daniel comes along again. He interprets the writing. The king offered Daniel gifts and power to interpret the handwriting, but Daniel refused the gifts from the king. Chapter 5, verses 16 and 17 the king says, I have personally heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. So here goes Daniel, once again, being elevated up in the kingdom to responsibility. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known 
to him. So he's offered these gifts, but he refuses them. He was not persuaded by the things of the world. Daniel's motivated by his love and honor of God. He doesn't need the things that the world offers to be motivated to serve God or to, to do uh, you know, the ministry that God has given him. He says, keep your, keep your gifts. I will, I'll tell you uh, the interpretation of this writing. It makes me think of the words of Jesus. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? And Daniel was such a man of character. He said, I don't want what the king has to offer, really. <clears throat> so Daniel had to share a not-so-popular message with the king. That his kingdom, too, was coming to an end. So <laughs> Daniel's in this position where he keeps having to tell these mighty, powerful kings, these rulers, that they're coming to an end. How would you like to have to go and tell this king who has total control, really, uh, well, in a worldly sense, he has control over your, he can throw you to the lions, he can throw you in a furnace. Of course, God ultimately has control, as we see in these stories. But how would you like to go tell him? <laughs> well, basically what this is saying is that your kingdom is about over. You're really nothing, you're nobody. Not a popular message to have to tell the king, but that's what it said. The writing that was on the wall, and I think it's in verses uh, 20, about 25 through 28, it basically says that your kingdom's coming to an end, you've been found deficient, and your kingdom will be divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And so Daniel gets promoted again. Even though he, re he rejected what the king offered him, the king gave it to him anyway, and he, he promoted him even higher in, in the kingdom. And the king was slain that very night. King Darius of the Medes comes and, and slay, slays King Belshazzar. And now we have a new king, King Darius. And as soon as he becomes king, he elevates Daniel even further in the kingdom. So Daniel was quite an impressive person. <laughs> he was very talented, it seems, and, and, and a man of character that even these wicked kings could not resist putting him in places of power in their little kingdoms. But when that happens, the other leaders in the kingdom become jealous of Daniel, and they target him, notice this, they target him politically. Chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, they couldn't find anything on him, so they had to create something. Chapter 6, uh, verse 5, then these men said, we shall not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel because he was such a person of character. Unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> you know, you Christians, we can't find really anything on you, but you're against all of these things. <laughs> And I mean, I could list them. You know what they are. It's, it's not that you're doing anything wrong. It's what you won't do. Again, it's not that you're worshiping God. It's what you won't accept. That's what they're going to nail you on. And that's what they do here. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction 
that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. So these geniuses had a law in the books that said any law that we pass cannot be revoked. Well, what if you pass a really dumb law? You, can't, you, you have no, <laughs> no way to undo it. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. And so they nailed Daniel on, on a fabricated, the whole thing was fabricated. He hadn't done anything wrong. He hadn't done anything offensive to anybody. So they found, they created something on him. Satan often attempts to intimidate and silence God's people by working through the legal system. We really need to pay attention. Uh, that's another important lesson, I think, that we can learn from the life of Daniel, that Satan attempts to intimidate and silence God's people by working through the law or through politics or through the legal system. So what was Daniel's response to this new law? Did he say, oh my goodness, I'm, I better go into hiding. I better just you know, put my head down and, and be quiet. I better not ruffle any feathers or raise a ruckus or draw attention to myself. Is that what he did? No. He opened his windows and prayed three times a day. But this is an important point too, which is what he had been doing all along. He was already honoring God. He was already doing these things. He didn't say, well, because there's this law passed, well, you know, I'm going to start doing. He was already doing these things. He was such a man of God, such a man of character. What good is our faith if we quit when things get tough? Isn't that why we even have faith or need faith is to get us through things that we can't control or we can't understand. That's why our faith is in one who, who does understand and who does control. So Daniel gets thrown to the lions, and of course we know that God protected him. And this King Darius, he, he's just as unstable as uh, Nebuchadnezzar, it seems like. He must have had a hint of faith. Remember how Nebuchadnezzar would make these statements about the God of Daniel, and, and they were true and accurate, but he never quite really <laughs> believed it in his heart. He never really lived up to it. It's like, just, it's like a person who comes to, to just mental assent to the gospel, but they don't really trust they don't really give their heart to God. It's just in the head. It has to move from the head to the heart. And it doesn't do that with these guys. With, with, um, well, I guess eventually it did with Nebuchadnezzar, but not in the beginning. And it, doesn't do it, it didn't do it with Belshazzar, and it doesn't seem to do it with Darius. But he must have had a hint of faith in Daniel's God. Because when he threw Daniel into the lion's den, he laid awake all night wondering if... Because he, he really did like Daniel. And so he got tricked by these other leaders of his kingdom, right? He liked Daniel, but because of this genius law in the books that you can't change a new dumb law, he was stuck. He had to throw Daniel to the lions even though he liked Daniel. He didn't want to do it, but he couldn't do anything about it because you can't change the law of the Medes and Persians. So Daniel gets tossed in there, and the king lays awake all night wondering 
and almost praying <laughs> to the God of Daniel to protect him, wondering if Daniel's God will protect him from the lions. And so at first light, I mean, as soon as the sun's coming over the horizon, he gets up and he runs to the, the, the location of this lion's den, and he calls out to Daniel, asking him if his God protected him. It's almost like there was a hint of belief in Darius. Another important lesson from this section is wicked people forget to factor God into their plans. And it's interesting, there was no law that said a survivor couldn't be removed from the lion's den, so they bring Daniel out. He brings him out from the lion's den, and what does he do? Evil plans have a way of coming back on you. Look at verse 24 in chapter 6. Remember these guys who tricked King Darius into passing a law saying that everybody for 30 days has to worship you or the image of you. They passed this law and they tricked him because he didn't think ahead that, well, Daniel only bows down to one God. We've seen that. We know that. So, you know, my friend Daniel's going to get thrown into the lion's den. He didn't think about that. So, but evil plans have a way of coming back on you. Verse 24, then uh, the king then gave orders and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel and they cast them, their children and their wives into the lion's den. And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Wicked people forget to factor God into their plans. See, this is not... Murphy's Law or simple irony, this is God, God's Word at work. Proverbs 11.8 says, The righteous is delivered from trouble, but the wicked takes his place. It's a biblical principle at work right here in the book of Daniel. Ezekiel 11.21 says, But as for those whose hearts go after their detestable things and abominations, I shall bring their conduct down on their heads. And that's what happened to these men who formulated this wicked plan against one of God's people. Proverbs 26, 27 falls in this same category. It says, He who digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone it will come back on him. And then I can't help but think about the book of Esther, and remember Haman the Agagite, who built the gallows to have Mordecai the Jew hung on it, and he hung on it himself. Because the righteous is delivered from trouble, but the wicked takes his place. Now, we know that's, that's not always the case. Sometimes people die martyr, mar, a martyr's death. And God is honored through that as well. And, 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 you know, I always thought, you read these stories of people who were persecuted so severely and tortured and I just recently read one. Well, there's a little book called The Light and the Glory. It's about uh, really the founding of America going way back. Um, um, the section I just read was in the 1500s. And it's talking about how these, um, these French and Spanish missionaries came. And the point the authors are making is that they're trying to show that, that the United States was, God's hand was at work in the formation of the United States. Even though a lot of bad things happened, a lot of mistakes were made, you can see God's hand in it. And so these missionaries um, that came, 
to the Iroquois and to many other Native American tribes, they were oftentimes tortured horribly. And just like you can read, you know, other the Book of Martyrs and, and stories of people that were burned at the stake, and you just think, how you know, how does a person have the fortitude? And all I can ever come up with is that the Bible says God's grace is sufficient for the time of need, for the hour of need. His grace is sufficient. And so he just, I think he, 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 we don't know it until we're in it, that yeah, we can endure. We can um, push through even to the point of, of death. We can do that because the Spirit of God will fill us at the time when we need it. But doesn't it give you great hope to think that, that wicked people, and then maybe I shouldn't feel this way, but, but they've got it coming to them. God is in control. And I wouldn't wish evil on anyone, but I do wish justice to come. Because we serve a just God. And I'm very interested in, in justice. And I'm so thankful that God's wrath for me was poured out on Jesus. Justice came through the person of Christ. But he who digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone it will come back on him. So when you think that the people of this world, it seems like there's just no hope for anything good to, to come out of any of this, they, they just push ahead and, and they manage to get things done and, and, and things don't go the way we want as believers. Don't forget, every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that Christ is Lord one day. And justice will be done. I find great hope in, in that knowledge. But God is a God of love, and he's, he's a just God. But everybody gets a chance to turn to him, to repent. Nebuchadnezzar seemed to do it, but Belshazzar was slain by an enemy. He didn't ever seem to, to repent. So what do we learn from the first six books of Daniel. Just four real quick. I know I'm probably going too long. I have a tendency to do that, don't I? Just real quick, um, four points that I think we could just, little nuggets we could take away. Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. And you see that in these wicked kings' lives. Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. So where are you? You know, Where are you in your commitment? And a, a friend of God. God honors those who honor Him. In what ways could we right now, today, this very day, add something, change something, take something out of our lives to honor Him? God honors those who honor Him. And the third thing, yesterday's commitment won't get you through today. You can't rely on, well, I've been to church, or I've done this, or I've read my Bible. What are you doing today? How are you committed today? Yesterday's commitment will not get you through today. Nebuchadnezzar could make great claims about God, but he wasn't committed. And if he even was in the moment, if he believed it in the moment, if he doesn't believe it the next day, all of a sudden he's building a golden statue and telling everybody in the kingdom to bow down to it. Yesterday's commitment won't get you through today. And the last one, being impressed by God is not the same thing as being surrendered to Him. It has to go from our head to our heart. We can't just believe in our head or say great things or know all the right words. 
Has it penetrated our heart? Is our life surrendered to Him? So I hope that you're just encouraged by these simple little lessons out of the book of Daniel and that you will evaluate your own life and, and make the changes that need to be made for us to stay committed to the one true God. So I think the girls are going to come lead us in, in worship.